0: Welcome to the Student Radio History Podcast. My name is Rafael Alumeri. This podcast series is part of a major book project, A History of Student Radio in Australia, which is fully independent and completely self published in honour of the independent nature of student radio. For information on the project, or if you'd like to support me, please visit studentradiohistory.com.au or find me at Student Radio History on Instagram or Facebook. This is a weird one. This episode is about the pirate radio station known as 3DR Draft Resistance Radio, which was created as part of a protest against the Vietnam War in 1971. There have been small pirate radio projects before and after 3DR, but none as organised, as ambitious, or as notorious as 3DR. It was a short few years after 3DR that the community radio licence was introduced in Australia, removing the immediate need for illegal broadcasts this episode, will begin by explaining the political context of the station, which cannot be separated from the station itself. The Vietnam War was opposed, and opposing the draft became the way of opposing the war. Then I will explain the organization of the political action at Melbourne University and the reasoning behind building a pirate radio station as part of this protest. This protest action ended in a great deal of shattered glass and embarrassment for the police, along with triumph for the protesters. 3DR went on to live for about another year in various physical forms and different names. In 1974, moves were made to obtain a legal broadcasting license for radical radio at the beginnings of 3CR and the Community Radio Federation. This pirate radio was set against a heavy political background. The conflict of the time was the Vietnam War. Vietnam was a country minding its own business, exploring the possibilities of communism. America decided to invade this country that was minding its own business. You may have some deja vu at this point. America seems to do this a lot. Invade countries that I have no business being in. The Americans and the Australians justified their involvement in Vietnam by arguing in favor of something called the domino effect. They argued that if we allow communism to take over Vietnam, even if the Vietnamese want it, communism will spread all over Southeast Asia and then the world. The Americans lost the war. Mysteriously, communism did not take over the world. The travesties of the war were unjustified then and unjustified now. The Vietnam War was harder to ignore than the Iraq War because it was brought to their backyards. Conscription meant that the government forced young people to fight in the war whether they wanted to or not. Specifically, young men aged 18 to 20 who won at the draft lottery, where their birthday was pulled out of a ballot. So that might remind you of the phrase, my number is up. Imagine being drafted into the Iraq war. Not only is the war itself outrageous, but you yourself are forced to hold a gun and go to a country that's done nothing to you and fight in a bloody war that you have nothing to do with. Conscription was a heavily local issue which forced the Vietnam issue into our personal lives as privileged Australians, and so the draft became the way to protest the war. Harry Van Morst was a significant figure in the protest movement at the time. Following a visit to Vietnam himself, Harry describes the horrifying realities of the war which catalyzed these young people to action.
1: At that stage, the, the Vietnamese were quite concerned that they were winning the war but they were losing so many people for the bombing and everything else that they really wanted this the peace agreements to, to come to a head and for some kind of ceasefire etc and they'd asked they, they'd informed us about that and asked us to help spread the word that uh, they, they weren't going to lose they, they will win the war but the sooner it was fixed the better so keep the fight up and that was in a sense the main message that uh, we were bringing them out plus a lot of evidence like we had photos of all the types of bombs that were being used, and anti-personnel grenades, and young little girl dying of it. You said that. Still gives me.
0: As we know all too well today, in 2020, injustice is not enough for action. The other element that was necessary to mount effective action was solidarity, having an immersive culture which supported action. This culture, this solidarity, these actions were all overwhelmingly led by young people. Paul Fox, a Vietnam draft resister, describes his view of the era.
2: There was a, a massive legacy after the Second World War of, you know, it's, we're, we're only talking about 25 years after or less after the Second World War had ended, you know, when this radical movement started. So they were pretty conservative regimes in both politically and socially that you know everyone just wanted to get on with life and don't rock the boat keep things nice and then when the, the 60s came along and uh, people started rebelling against uh, that sort of conservatism that you know things took off but really we were just we were just doing had similar ideas to young people around the world right around the world. And the counterculture was pretty strong And it was based on music, the music industry, Uh, you know, the whole sort of ethos of, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the missing thing out of that was politics. So radical politics was sweeping the world. You know, you had riots in France, uh, students on the left bank and, you know, you had every group of teenagers was rebelling against the social system that they were in.
0: The word of the time was civil disobedience. The Black American Civil Rights Movement was a huge source of inspiration to Vietnam War protesters, in particular their extremely effective use of nonviolent protest, the type that was encouraged by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Other sources of philosophical inspiration were figures such as Bertrand Russell and Gandhi, who may be the most famous proponent of passive resistance in India. In 2020, Gandhi's racist and sexist views are under severe scrutiny, as they should be. But while we should not have the urge to glorify anybody, to have them beyond criticism, we should be able to acknowledge real inspirational behaviour when we know it's there.
3: Whereas uh, young people generally who are conscripted, uh, we had a far fewer proportion going to university, (laughs) but the university gave you time to think and reflect about things. you on deferment from conscription. So I had an initial period of deferment. Uh, but um, because I, I'd been politically sensitized by the um, nuclear testing, nuclear issues, I looked more closely at the Vietnam situation and, and realized how wrong the war was. But at the same time, I also I looked at past movements to, to change things, particularly Gandhi in, in India and the civil rights movement in, in America, Martin Luther King, so I, I rapidly uh, became aware of the, the importance of non-violent um, methods of, of struggle to, to try and correct a, a major problem and you know, sought to apply that in the case of conscription.
0: This acceptance of civil disobedience as an effective means of action brought together what was known as the New Left. They stood against the philosophy of many Maoists, otherwise known as communists, or what we might know today as the Trots, we back then often advocated the use of controlled violence as a means of protest while the new left agreed generally on non-violent tactics their philosophical motivations varied massively dissenters were many among christians in particular the quaker tradition in america many priests were vocal against the vietnam war there were many atheists many socialists michael madison a famous vietnam draft resister and later the darling of the resistance movement was an anarchist. Fran Newell, a Vietnam protester and a long-time activist, explains one of many catalyzing experiences that shaped her philosophy. In
4: 1967, there was an American Quaker in Australia called Jonathan Mersky mm-hmm. and he had been with the American Friends Service Council in Vietnam, and he spoke about what he witnessed in Vietnam, And that was when I thought the key to this is the incredible human catastrophe, the civilian casualties. Um, So that was where I initially focused my attention. I've always been propelled overwhelmingly by
0: humanitarian concerns and um, a sense of social justice. Pro-war advocates and Vietnam apologists, even today, attempt to discredit the movement by exaggerating and sometimes, in my opinion, entirely fabricating violent attitudes towards returning soldiers. My recent visit to the Australian War Memorial, for example, had me shocked at the distorted representation of the actions and motivations of the Vietnam protesters. Perhaps it was true that there were lone actors who responded disrespectfully to returning soldiers? Those actions should be condemned if they happened. An individual soldier, especially someone who was drafted, is not to blame personally for the war, that they did not plan, that they did not initiate. Those returning soldiers were victims in their own rights, and many of those who survived are still suffering as a consequence of the horrors of the war. However, this popular idea that it was a widely spread meme that protesters spat on returning soldiers it seems extremely suspect. I take the liberty of seriously doubting that this behaviour reflected the movement in general at all. Michael Hamilgreen, draft resistor and activist of the time, explains his own attitude towards returning soldiers.
3: There's a, a difference between acknowledging individual sacrifice, individual courage, which you should do, but that, that shouldn't flow over into uh, some sort of attempt to justify the war itself or conscription itself. Well, what worries me is that people, you know, historians like, or hammer just using some sort of claimed uh, antagonism from the anti-war movement towards return soldiers to justify the war itself, which is just totally unjustifiable.
0: An interesting feature of the draft was the fact that the law itself only applied to young men, meaning the draft resistors themselves were men, but women were a huge part of the moratorium movement as well as resistance to the draft. Women were obviously affected by the draft through having their partners, sons, brothers taken away to war, but I would argue that they had more of a choice about whether or not to participate in these actions or to choose to just keep their heads down. They firmly decided to participate and were significantly involved in mounting anti-war actions. Fran Newell reflects on the role of women in the movement.
4: I wouldn't have described it this way at the time, but when I was reflecting on the period, it occurred to me that the non-violent civil disobedience that we were involved in organising was in fact a form of community development. And by that I mean that it provided a way that women could be equally involved as the young men who were being conscripted. So if a a young woman or an older woman like Joan uh, Coxedge or Jean McLean or myself or Di Crunden or you know, Julie Ingleby, any of us could, if we believed that it was right and would be effective, we could take on an activist role that would put us at risk of being arrested just like draft resistors were at risk of being arrested. So... That was how I think about it now, that women had the choice and did make the choice to to oppose the Vietnam War and conscription in ways
0: that involve civil disobedience and the possibility of being jailed. The movement was massive. People involved in draft resistance came from a patchwork of backgrounds.
4: 69, I took a year's leave from university to work full-time as an activist and then 1970 I went back to uni and then 71 I began working. I was working for an organisation called International Development Action and I was their executive officer. September 71 I was 22.
5: At that stage I was working on the opera house as a labourer putting asbestos in the lift wells and um Member of the Builders slavers Federation.
2: I was just a reasonably uh, naive working class nineteen-year-old, really, when the uh, when conscription came up. So, you know, the events of conscription and the war in Southeast Asia wasn't really something that was discussed in my circles, or, or by anyone really at that stage. And it was only because my number had come up that, um, you know, that forced me to, you know, get try and work out a bit, bit more of an understanding. I actually did register for the draft when I was an apprentice. Then I was asked to go to a medical, and I, I got a deferment because I was an apprentice, mechanic. so I had uh, 18 months before I finished my apprenticeship. During this two year period when I had my deferment I, uh, things were moving pretty quickly and because I was called up my knowledge of um, what was actually going on in Vietnam was um, becoming more increasingly newsworthy so I was actually you know, more aware of what was going on, the stakes involved and in the end I realised that it was untenable and that I wouldn't be going and I'd be joining the draft resistors. So, so that's what I did. I joined the draft resistors.
0: Opposing the war is one thing, but doing something about it was another. The movement in Australia focused on resisting the draft in order to resist the war.
3: I mean, conscription became the means of fighting the war. So the conscription scheme itself was uh, an unjust scheme. It was a, quite a cynical scheme where you had a ballot. <laughs> Initially, it was one in 10, then one in 18 got caught up. While the rest of society could go on untroubled. Psychologically, it was very manipulative because the, it, it let each young man approaching you know, the age of 20 think, oh, maybe I can escape from this by not registering. So we had a big emphasis on don't register as a, as a sort of a definite way of confronting the whole scheme and injustice of the scheme and, and getting away from that uh, cynical approach of saying you, you can get out of it. <laughs> we were determined to confront it. I mean, I could have left at any stage to go to England. I had an English dual citizenship, I could have gone to England. But, you know, my, my position was to try and take a stand against conscription and the war in you know, using the, the same sort of methods as Luther King and Gandhi would have done. The goal
5: wasn't to get out of it yourself, but to get rid of it. So at the practical level it was get rid of it, not get out of it.
0: Amidst all this, and even 50 years later, after being in jail himself, Michael Madison is anxious to be as kind as possible to the people on the other side of the picket fence.
5: It's actually more complicated than I thought in some ways. I think the government's feeling on this was much more. Um, I think the people who genuinely didn't want to do They didn't want to hurt people. Um, they were trying to work out a way, not just of how do we avoid bad publicity, but how do we avoid doing fairly bad stuff to people who, if asked privately, will say aren't actually doing bad things. Um, they are breaking the law.
0: Nonetheless, malicious or not, the government did want to do something about this painful thorn in their sides, the draft resistors. The approach was initially to just ignore them.
5: Um, So one of the things they brought in was this compulsory CO trial, conscious objective trial, Mm -hmm. which they could hold in your absence, which they did in my case. I stayed in a coffee shop across the road in case observing from the court was seen as participation. The government wanted to get rid of people. So anyway, the government tried to force these on draft resistors as a way of getting rid of them. And in some cases, well basically in some cases, people are actually in court saying those are no longer my views. This is a letter I wrote three years ago. And the magistratus said, well, we can only go on the evidence in front of us and according to this letter, this is what you think. <laughs> Not what you're saying today. <laughs> Rather than jail, potentially large numbers. So there's one of the different ways of getting rid of them basically. And mm-hmm. it have gone on too long to just, I think to just let it hang on. Had to be doing some kind of action. They um, asked this Commonwealth policeman who'd interviewed me about a year after I refused to register. They asked him about my views, and he knew what my position was, what I wanted to do. So, they, and the nature of the law was you had to be opposed to all war. It didn't have to be religious. It didn't have to be opposed to, to all violence. Anyway, so in my case, they, they tried this, and the Commonwealth policeman involved was asked, "You know, like you, you've talked to Mr. Madison, yes, and um, and he's opposed to to war." And, the policeman knew what the government wanted, knew what I wanted. They said, no, it's not opposed to war as such, he's opposed to conscription for any purpose. That meant I didn't come under the legal definition and I couldn't be found a CO. Yeah. So they had to say not a CO.
1: We had more and more draft resistors uh, actually hiding from the police. But the problem with it was that in doing that, the government was then able to ignore us because they were still getting about 90% of all people Registering, and therefore eligible for being sent to Vietnam or whatever other wars they wanted to start. So we thought we needed a confrontation. We needed something that brought it back onto the agenda, as there are all these people who are actually refusing, rather than this ninety percent or eighty percent, whatever they claimed, uh, who are still going.
6: We came to the position that the, the penalties for not obeying the National Service Act were as illegitimate as the act itself. So, in a sense, we then said we're not going to front the court cases. We're going to, if necessary, go underground and
3: remain active. That was important. We formed an underground. I didn't know how extensive it was that there were resistors being hidden by people around Melbourne in a very big way, yes. So we, we would be moving from house to house, you know, often as frequently as every month. Sometimes we would... Uh, be alerted by ordinary community members about the the police trying to catch us. Like I was at a a, a safe house in Kensington and the estate agent from whom the house was being rented phoned up and said, oh the police have contacted us, they believe in So within a minute or two of that call, of course we we immediately shifted to another location. But an ordinary estate agent deciding to, to, to help us, I mean it's amazing.
0: The Draft resistors shifted to a focus on publicity and gaining attention for their plight. It's important to remember the massive toll these protests took on your personal life. This may be an interesting story to reflect on for us, but for the people involved, years of their young lives were taken by living underground, not being able to work, moving from house to house, not going to university, living under constant threat of arrest, and the fate for many Draft resistors going to jail
2: to be to be a draft resistor it was it was quite a quite a commitment personally, especially as it sort of went on and developed into uh, potentially going to jail you know in the seventies going to jail in a place called like pentridge was quite an awful thing um, it wasn't uh it wasn't something that yet you, you took lightly you know seventies penal system was um quite depriving it was you know there was no such thing as I mean, a television or a laptop or things like that when you did your time you did it reasonably hard it was quite a violent atmosphere
3: i mean they watching where fran was working for starting chapel street and the 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 office staff had alerted the fact that the police were watching so she in order to meet me she'd have to go extraordinary lengths to shake them off
2: <laughs> i guess um yeah it was um it it was a difficult time for everyone my problem especially with the whole interview is that i haven't talked about this with anybody in in uh 40 how, how something years since i got out of jail i haven't um you know i've mentioned it a couple of times to sort of good friends um, at particular times, but I've I've never discussed it again, again since uh, since those times. So a lot of it is means that I'm a bit vague in recollection, but also it's um, you know it drags up emotional things from that era that I've, I've never dealt with. So um, it is difficult even just talking about it
0: now. The purpose of living underground was to force the government to pay attention to them. Living underground did not mean hiding from the police. Draft resistors would appear in public to give speeches, attend protests and on one occasion even to interrupt ECE exams. This desire to perform political actions led to the decision to create the draft sanctuary at the University of Melbourne.
1: I remember going to uh, Michael and Green's um, place where he was hiding out at the time and um, we were talking about this problem and what we could do. And so he Came up with the idea of the siege at Melbourne University. On campus, we'd had a we called a uh, student meeting, an open student meeting, (laughs) with the SRC support to um, consider a motion to declare the student union building a draft sanctuary, and that was passed overwhelmingly. It was a very big meeting, actually, and um, so we had that in place, and then it was just a question of publicising it, getting students to be aware and getting people from outside the campus, making them aware.
0: There were four distinct groups involved in the draft sanctuary. The draft resistors, the organisers, the radio techs, and the protesters. The draft resistors were to be Michael Hamilgreen, Green, Michael Madison, John Scott, Tony Dalton, and Paul Fox. The organisers were the Radical Action Movement, previously known as the Students for Democratic Society, and their leader was Harry Van Morst.
3: But Harry was the sort of the, the bridge between the, the draft Sisters and the, the radio people. Mm-hmm. The draft Sisters, you know, uh, because they were in hiding anyway, their communication with the main group was, was far less. We only worked through intermediaries like Harry and Jean McLean from Save Our Sons. We didn't have direct contact at that stage because we were already underground. We didn't have direct contact with the wider anti conscription, anti Vietnam War movement, but the people like Harry had contact with with both sides, as it were. So he would have had much more contact with Chris Holliday and and the the technical people.
0: The third group was a disparate assortment of protesters, many students, some not, young people, old people, people living in the area, people who showed up to support the resistors. And finally, to add a little electronic spice into the mix, they decided to have a fourth team, a team to build the radio.
5: And there was a reporter, I think from The Age, who was going to take part. From inside and report it. And he was told about it a couple of days before it was due to forget it by the editor the, the conscription was a dead issue. Now the troops are out, there wasn't an issue of any kind anymore.
1: In the process of thinking, well, why do they ignore that? And you know, just leave us sitting there. You know, we you know, we, we had exams to look at and things, so we we wondered, you know, what can we do? And that's when the thought, the discussions with Mark Michael and I, uh, came up of okay, we'll challenge them at two fronts because the media might ignore us. If the government ignores us, the media will probably ignore us, which, as we turned out, they didn't do it at all, but there was a risk. So we thought, well, if we have our own media, then it becomes much more difficult for them to ignore us. So that's when the radio concept was set up, that we thought we could use that to make sure that no matter what the government did or the police did, the community would be able to listen in. But... It was also the fact that it was Yeah, you know, just by itself. Having it there was just the first time, as far as they were concerned, a radio. You know, and we knew that that was going to help us get the, the media and get it back on the agenda we go to Vietnam and uh, to resistance.
7: Again, because it's before social media, it's about how do you reach people? Mm. And, you know, I'd love to know how many people were reached by it. I don't imagine there were even in the hundreds. One, you had to know about it. Two, you had to be able to pick it up. So it was, you know, to a certain extent symbolic, but also that element of, you know, hey, look at us. We've, we've, we've even got a radio station. Not only can't you get our draft resistors, but we're getting messages that, you know, beyond our immediate circle. Sort of, broad well, broadcasting,
4: yeah. How do you communicate when uh, you don't have a lot of control about what the press reports about you or what the radio reports about you. So you've got posters and you've got leaflets and having a, a radio station seemed a terrific adjunct to that.
2: The radio station was um, used to, used as publicity because that's in in those days where clearly there's no um, internet or social media. I mean that was that was all all we had was that type of publicity.
3: The idea of a radio station was there before the siege and it's just that the the ability to protect it from immediate confiscation and and immediate charges only arose because the siege itself created the means of protecting it, if only for a short period. The opportunity to test out the whole idea came as a result of the concept of the the, the siege where you had had constant mobilisation of people to stop police entering plus it was a university campus and all that sort of thing so it created the kind of protected environment that under which a pirate radio station could operate
8: so it was a time whereby it was actually easier to build the transmitter so that the, the 3dr transmitter wasn't very powerful it was only 100 watts but then you think of the abc am stations three lo and three ar as they were you know they're each 50, watts each of a huge antenna so they weren't very powerful but They were relatively easy to build, and we could build them and miniaturise them in physical size because transistors were readily available and affordable, so we could build a combination of solid-state transistor componentry with the valve output stages. So that made things a lot easier than if we'd tried to do it earlier.
7: I think it was just kind of raising the issue with the public, you know, there was, there was felt to be a need to keep this issue at the forefront of people's minds. And also a bit of defiance, you know, that the cops can't touch us. So, you know, the draft resistance radio would be putting out messages about this, that and the other. Meantime, the cops are running around in circles trying to find the draft resistors. Meantime, we're putting out broadsheets of the university, you know, printing lots of stuff, manning the stalls, God knows what else.
5: Paul the whole privilege of the radio was to make a situation that couldn't be ignored. So when it came to it, Pirate Radio started started broadcasting, the thing was declared a draft sanctuary. The draft resistance brought in, this was announced, had a couple of ways out in mind, there were lots of people there. The press were interested in the Pirate Radio, of course, and all interviews relating to the Pirate Radio were done with draft resistance. So there was no way of dissociating the um, draft resistance and the radio, and the radio's name, 3DR, was related to that as well.
0: The technical team built the radio from scratch. Chris Holliday, who himself was a draft resistor, and Dan Van Alkem were the primary techs. Dan has now passed away. May he rest in peace. Longtime friend Chris Long describes the building of the transmitter on his behalf. Thank you very much to Chris for this audio. Now, Dan in
9: 1971 felt that he could best contribute to bringing the war in Vietnam to a close via the usage of electronic media, specifically radio broadcasting. And uh, Dan and a close friend of his, Chris Holliday, also of that generation, also politicised, Chris from Melbourne University and Dan from the more radical Monash University, teamed up to build a pirate broadcasting station to give the uh, Vietnam draft resistors a voice i had a small part in its construction a very very small part almost a footnote dan invited me in one day uh, to look at this thing and he told me uh, does that transmitter look attractive to you i said well not particularly he said he said well i'd like you to fondle it i said fondle it he said yes he said um, i'm 19 Um, I can be convicted for constructing this thing, and the penalty is um, a $20,000 fine and or five years jail. I thought, ugh. So he said, but if you fondle it, you're 17, you can't be convicted, you're a minor, you're not legal. Um, So if you fondle it, your fingerprints will be all over it and will be absolved of any guilt if the worst comes to the worst. So... He gave me some hand cream, (laughs) and I spent the next half hour fondling the draft resistor's radio transmitter. To my knowledge, my fingerprints are still on the components of that transmitter to this day.
0: Chris Long found out later that there would have been significant penalties for his parents if he was found guilty, but that's in the past now. I would love to give some perspective on this heavy issue by reminding you that most of these people were under the age of 25, and most much younger. The following is a piece of audio from Dan Van Elkham and Chris Holliday in 1975, and a sincere thank you to Chris Long for hanging on to this audio for 45 years. Dan and Chris used to broadcast on ham radio, which, if I can be crude, (laughs) was like a prehistoric Facebook. Here is the broadcast from 1975. (laughs) <laughs>
10: operating from a new angle your announcer on uh new year radio 75. we're waiting for our uh guest um, announcer to arrive he's just arrived no he hasn't actually he's got nowhere to sit now what's the next track um the next track no but we're right we've got our guest announcer has arrived and he's going to treat us to something i want people to listen with bated breath, all throughout it, uh, throughout this thing, this uh, talk. And talk. all junior announcers will please clear out. And all junior announcers will please clear out. Out of uh, the front <laughs> seat, too. Because <laughs> we'll do this properly. Yeah, okay. Um, besides, if we shut the doors, it'll if be we'll warmer at least got to have the mic channel going. <laughs> yeah. <it. laughs> at least something will That's the only reason where He's <laughs> The only reason he's being featured is because the mic channel works without hum. No, let's put our hands together. For the one and only, and here he is. Yeah, Take it away, Chris.
11: Chris gained into... Performing the only un- intellectual um, bit of the program so far to talk on education or uh, something that goes by that name. I've finished an article. It's not mine. It's by someone. Uh, I'll find it in a moment. Anyway, it's uh, entirely education for inequality, and it's fairly applicable to uh, present situation in Australia um especially in victoria right the seagulls are out get lost (laughs) do (laughs) you education for inequality children from poor families perform less well in schools than middle class families they leave school at a younger age than their abilities warrant they are underrepresented in tertiary institutions of all kinds this pattern has been widely documented overseas and despite Despite our belief in the lucky country, we have avoided the worst of Europe's class distinctions and America's extremes of wealth, the virus of educational inequality flourishes here too. Is
12: that right?
11: As the Carmel report points out, nearly half the students entering professional faculties in Australian universities in 1965 and 67 were children of professional and managerial fathers who consisted of only 17.5% of the adult population. Industrial workers were nearly 60% of the population, but their children accounted for only 22.6% of students entering these faculties.
0: A week ahead of the event, the draft sanctuary was announced, and it was going to start on Monday, the 27th of September, 1971.
3: The difference with this one is we announced the whole thing a week in advance. Everyone knew what was going to happen. The Commonwealth Police knew, the press knew. This is the advantage, I suppose, of non-violent direct action where you're not trying to conceal anything, you're trying to generate uh, understanding of a a key issue and uh, you do as much as you can in a public way and challenge the legitimacy of the the government to enforce these sort of laws and engage in these sort of uh, actions which we regarded as genocidal
0: the day before the planned sanctuary on sunday the 26th of september there was a raid on the Radical Action Movement's headquarters. Dozens of police stormed the building. A conservative estimate is 40 police, and others recall up to 100 police in this house in Carlton.
1: On the Sunday before we suddenly found our headquarters, we had a headquarters in Parmesan Street, which is a two-storey sort of, used to be a private hotel. They had eight bedrooms and so on we had, and that was our SDS headquarters, and we had people who slept there and lived there permanently. Suddenly we found the police there, there were about 100 police, came racing in to raid the building. So we had this silly situation where everybody was on edge, of course, that the police suddenly, you know, at least 100 of them we, we counted, uh, were going through the two buildings looking for drug resistors because they, they thought it was stupid enough to have them hidden, hidden there for the... the Sanctuary, which is going to open on um, Monday morning, but that gave us great publicity, and because we you know we got that they were there a lot for a long time, going through, and we had them in our corridor, sort of move, moving around little loops of, of them. So they had about thirty people in a house that basically would you know, uh, accommodate four or five people. So they were all over the place, in rooms and back out in the corridor. Um, It was quite, quite humorous to see.
0: This only served to give the resistors publicity for the upcoming sanctuary, which is exactly what they wanted, and constitutes one of the first mistakes that the police made. The previous night, Paul Fox also decided not to attend the draft sanctuary as planned as he found out his partner was pregnant. A previous pregnancy had miscarried as a result of the stress of Paul living as a draft resistor, and the doctor recommended avoiding this type of stress. For the safety of the baby a reminder of the real human toll that these actions took, the serious risks that were faced, and the bravery of the participants. It's now Monday morning, and the sanctuary was on. Four draft resistors, a mixture of long hair, leather jackets, Bertrand Russell, and a knot in their stomachs showed up at 9am, 27th of September, 1971. Regular students were walking around the union building, reading books and eating chips, while the resistors and their mass of supporters hung out. Meetings of student clubs were even addressed by the resistors themselves.
4: The George Payton room was a part of the student union, so we could easily have eaten at the CAF. Up until the point of the police arriving en masse, I don't remember not walking around quite freely. The whole student union was functioning like it would normally function.
1: We then set up series of alarms uh, loud fire type alarm. yeah so and that all worked pretty well as expected i was uh, hoped would be a better term we didn't expect much
0: we just hoped they held a press conference explaining their motives in holding the sanctuary and announcing the broadcast of the pirate radio station the following day their media strategy was quite clever that by having a press conference on the Monday, but only broadcasting their pirate radio on the Tuesday, they would find themselves in the newspapers not only the following day, but the day after that, and so on. The Radio broadcast on Tuesday, the twenty eighth of September. It airs until eleven thirty PM.
3: During broadcasting up until the late evening, the Postmaster General's technicians sought to jam the pirate radio station with a high-pitched whine, but did not totally block the sound. A PMG van equipped with a jamming device was discovered near Norton's Hotel and its antenna quickly disabled by students. Reports were received from listeners as far afield as Coburg, Preston, Malvern and even Frankston. (laughs) Frankston's impressive. Coburg's close enough anyway. We made a
1: series of... Tapes, and so music tapes over so kids' radio station coming without spending too much time on it once it was going.
3: But in terms of what was actually broadcast, um, I think it was you know, maybe short periods of one or two hours, and then within that there would have been talk about the role of pirate radio station in you know, presenting alternative news. I mean, you're looking at a period when all the major newspapers were pro-war, pro-conscription, including the age, <laughs> So this was an important step. Students, um, activists. We saw this as an important step of, of you know, showing that there are alternative views on, on what's happening. Yeah.
1: And things, like Imagine, don't mind did well. Uh, but we had a lot, of, a lot of other just acid rock from the U.S. and mm-hmm. so on. We played uh, some folk music. Obviously, played some Bill. Hang on, I'm just trying to think. We obviously had some Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> Jerry Garcia's theme. Jerry Garcia's. Grateful Dead? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> you should have been there. <laughs> yeah, Grateful Dead we were, we were on the list. And there was a, some, some jazz music that uh, one of them, the people liked. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a real mixture of things. But the first lot were basically various protest songs, including Bob Dylan, Masters of War, and Times Are Changing, those sorts of uh, songs. So I played a lot of those because there were plenty of those around by that stage. <clears throat> Joe Byers, We Shall Overcome. I'm sure we had that as one of the early ones.
5: And it varied as to where you could get it and how far, but as far as I could tell, it was something that, for instance, school kids would get it and talk about it the next day, whether they'd heard it, whether they could get it or whatever. It became like an interesting old thing that was happening.
0: On Wednesday, 3DR continues to play and resistors, protesters and organisers alike are all getting a bit tired. Exams were approaching soon and the protest had gone on for days. Many were getting ready to call it a wrap, declare a successful draft sanctuary and plan for future actions. History shows us that they would not be graced with an anticlimactic ending and at 5am the next morning, the police came.
2: L- looking back on it, the government got a bit sick and tired of us thumbing our noses at them and they had a policy change of instead of just uh, was ignore draft resistors. It was that, that's what they were trying to do. And then they said, okay, let's quieten down the draft resistors. Let's try and smash them. And I think that represented the change in attitude of, at that siege. You know, was like, okay, we're, we're going to get in, we're going to teach them a lesson, we're going to do whatever we can to um, shut them up we made it so obvious that, that there were there were thousands of draft resistors out there and that was was a viable thing where however you wanted to oppose it oppose it that was the point where they decided that they were going to try and um, try and get us
4: the draft resistors and their supporters including myself were camped out on the top floor in the George Patton building Uh, and that, you know, we had our sleeping bags and we had our meals and so on and so forth.
5: I can remember the the last night. There was the idea that people should leave, the four of us, that we should leave rather than be arrested. And our feeling was, I know Tony Dalton and I said this, the whole thing should be open to democratic decision. Good faith, I thought, required that um, you couldn't ask people to defend an empty building. At the same time, it didn't seem a good idea for the police to get to pick up everybody. So we got the idea of two go and two stay, and my suggestion was we draw straws for it. And the advantage, by chance, you've you've met Tony? Yes. John Scott, who was the other person there, Mm -hmm. um, about the same height as Tony. Mm -hmm. And Mike Hamill and me were much shorter. Mm -hmm. Um, We got the short straws and the place we stayed in the wall was very small. So I was
3: a bit lucky that uh, we were the ones we got. It, We felt it would be making a tactical mistake to have all one's eggs in one basket. Yeah. If, uh, if the police arrested all four, there might be difficulty in repeating this kind of action at other draft sanctuaries. Taking everything into account, the, ris- the resisters decided to split into pairs. One pair would leave the Union Building at some time before the doors were locked at 11pm to stay in another hiding place on campus. The other pair would hide as previously arranged in the alcove behind the George Patron straws were drawn between the four resistors so Mike Madison and I drew the straws remaining in the building.
1: <laughs> we, we had a motorcycle squad and about that four uh, students on motor, motorbikes, and they were rostered to go around and get a check of what's happening and um, they found suddenly that there were a whole lot of police, these were federal police, the Keystone Cops as they used to be called and they, they were all gathering across the motorcycle. People saw it, so we were right, all, all ready to organise. Everybody went back upstairs, those who were sleeping downstairs, and we um, we waited for them. Once we knew the police were coming, mm-hmm. we, of course, immediately used the radio to tell people about it. We also got the silence wailing and so on. So we had basically had the student around surrounded. Mm-hmm with hundreds of people who'd come in. We knew the radio would be useful for uh, mobilising people and getting
8: support. When we heard that the police were going to come the next morning, we actually had a pretty good idea when they were going to turn up. And from memory, that's because we had word that um, there was a big police build up the previous night, so it was pretty obvious what was going to happen. So we had a uh, hiding place for the transmitter ready, and we put the transmitter into the hiding place. It wasn't a very big transmitter. it was only the size of a um, large suitcase, so yep. it was pretty easy to hide. Then the cops came. As
7: I said, I wasn't there. I'd gone home. My parents thought it was time I turned up and showed my face.
4: <laughs> my uh, recollection, it really begins clearly on the day on which the police arrived. Early in the morning of the police raid, I'd actually fallen asleep and Julie Ingleby was the person who was keeping watch out the window and she suddenly said, they're coming. So everybody jumped out of their sleeping bags. I raced to the window to see what um, Julie was talking about. And so it was about, I'd say, five o'clock in the morning. There was just a slight mist rising from the grass. And through that mist, I could see a phalanx of Commonwealth police moving towards us, a large line of Commonwealth police moving towards the building. And I guess it was the emotion of the moment. But in my mind, I remember it in slow motion as they raised their uh, legs and stepped out and stepped forward and stepped out. And it's all there in this mist of these navy blue uniformed officers moving slowly towards the building. Michael Hamilgreen and Michael Madison, the two draft resisters who had agreed that they would stay in the student union uh, whilst the raid was on, um, they disappeared into their hiding hole, um, which involved climbing through the ceiling of the room we were in and dropping down between a false wall um, that was part of a renovation. So they stayed there. Um, we put the ceiling bits back and so there was no sign of them having gone that way. So Michael and I
5: just quickly went up into the ceiling and along this, you had to crawl along and then down into this hotel. We took a bottle of water and a bucket to use as a toilet. We had a blanket to put over us just in case a quick flash of a torch would, um, would, would pass over us just in case. So we went down into the thing, and barricaded the main door and then they went down, um, Lyndon Brown went down the side door I'm leaving it unlocked and went down basically a, a credible escape route but the police didn't, didn't really buy it.
1: I came in. Obviously, all the doors were locked, and the registrar came with keys and said, "Okay, okay, I'll open up." They pushed him out of the way and smashed the door in with bloody hammers and everything else. Well, it was, and that's one of the reasons. Once again, that we knew they were Keystone cops, not really federal police.
8: Well, I was inside the union building on the ground floor, and the stairs were barricaded with chairs. And I just remember the, the police smashing their way through, I think, the front doors from, from memory, and lots of commotion and um, running around and then forcing their way through the chairs uh, and then up through the uh, various floors of the university, of the union building. There were, from memory, probably a couple of hundred people inside protecting the draft resistors and impeding the police. Lots of noise, pretty chaotic. Mm-hmm. Lots of shouting and and, and all of that.
13: I, in fact, uh, (laughs) headed up the defence of Melbourne University when they hid some draft resistors up in the student union and they they elected me as their leader for defence, which I carried out, I think, fairly well without any violence, or no intentional violence. I, I got them to put a chain across the stairs leading up to the second floor or third floor and then stacked all the furniture on it. The police came at 4 o'clock in the morning, cut the chain, and some bits of furniture fell down on a couple of policemen's heads, and they were all a bit bloody. And there was a great photograph in the age of how these terrible students had beaten up these coppers in the university. <laughs> oh dear. And nobody laid a finger on them, they did it themselves.
1: We were all sitting up on the third floor. The police were blockaded behind the chain and the chairs and the thing had gone all the way up because we knew it was real this time, so he really put lots of furniture on, the, on those steps so they couldn't get up. They came in, they had bolt cutters, they cut the chain, and suddenly realised that Newton was right with the laws of gravity. The whole thing came down, and that's where the story about how nasty students threw chairs at the police. There was no throwing of chairs. They were stupid enough to bring them down upon themselves, and m- most of the police were smart enough to get out of the way. But one probably the guy who cut the, bone, <laughs> cut the chain couldn't get away in time. But nobody was seriously injured, including him.
3: We we were very committed at Melbourne University to non violent approaches. You know. So, the idea if the police raided was to you know, link arms and not to be in any way threatening the police.
4: Those of us. Who were there at the top? We formed a chain, um, linked arms, formed a chain, uh, sat down in at the top of the stairs with this um, uh, blocked stairway in front of us, and we began to chant the protest songs of the 60s. Um, of course, we sang uh, "We Shall Not Be Moved."
1: The head of the he was the deputy chief of federal police, he'd flown down especially from Canberra to do all this and he was there with a megaphone trying to tell us that if you don't move you've now been warned, if you don't move you'll be arrested but the courts had already indicated that if you're going to arrest someone for trespass you've got to make sure that they know they're trespassing because it could be an accident and so on, it's a bit hard to find somebody guilty so he obviously took that seriously and so he kept trying to tell us so we could see him power to the people <laughs> to him and it went on for a good half hour He, you know he must have been a horse we were and just after that when started crying down he gave up uh, he knew he wasn't going to rest at all anyway it was absolutely futile to even try it
3: the singing of the lennon thing was very important the power to the people i mean it just Appeared that song and it just so fitted the moment, and it became a kind of theme song for the, uh, the supporters who were linking arms. So you yeah, know, while I was in the alcove, uh, you know, police—I could hear the police searching for us—but you could also hear the singing of that song, and then the fact that it could get through to uh, wide audiences throughout Melbourne. I mean, there's so much great music at that period—the the sixties uh, the and early seventies—but that that was. So politically relevant. I mean, there's two songs. There's that one and there's Imagine. That was a very, very powerful uh, song. And and for that to be communicated over the uh, radio station in the context of an actual political action, I think that was quite significant. up on the second floor i don't recollect us having a radio up there yes. to, to listen to
1: it fair enough uh so that would um, probably
0: give you away
5: yeah um like we didn't know what was going on we're in a hole in the wall um
4: i agree. i guess there was uh a, a sense of apprehension because um we had no idea what the outcome would be if the draft resistors had been arrested they would have been in jail for a long period of time. I and, of course, all of us who were assisting them could have been arrested for uh, assisting in um, in an event, uh, breaking the law. So I said apprehension, and I used that word because fear... It's too narrow a word. apprehension captures the fact that it was an unknown situation we were in and it was um, the uh, lack of firm parameters is what makes those actions so challenging to undertake at the time.
1: Then suddenly, a couple of federal police came down the stairs, the other stairs, our two sets, um, came down from the fourth floor and um, with a big smile on their face saying, we've got the radio. And they came, came down and that made the police think, oh, well, at least we won't go. You know, we can't find the draft resistors. They're obviously not here, but we've um, got the, um, the radio, at least that's something. So they, they'd raced into the Student for Democratic Society, SDS office upstairs on the fourth floor They'd seen this thing here that was clearly electronic uh, and they made out, I don't know whether they believed it or not themselves, but they made out that that was the the, the radio station. And, of course, what they had was the actual scanner. those days, you had these plastic-type stencils that you'd type on and you'd use that on a Gastetna machine to, to make your newsletters and so on.
8: The police didn't find it. What they did do, unfortunately, was they broke into the amateur radio Club which mm-hmm. was also on the top floor and while I was a member of the amateur radio club the club had nothing to do with the pirate radio in fact they were they didn't support it at all so the, the police broke into the amateur radio club rooms and took uh, most of their amateur radio gear which was clearly nothing to do with the pirate radio and they claimed that they got the pirate radio uh, which they hadn't and it took Months and months and months for the amateur radio club to actually get the, the amateur radio gear back.
5: While we were in the hole at one stage, I know I had to—I just had to cough. Mum a bit worried, but um, they didn't seem to pick up on the, on the noise. I'm not sure if there were police in the room or not when I did that, or it was just in general. Yeah, anxiety—we were sort of crouched, things so out, anxiety, the lack of movement and confined space, and that stuff. But from what I can remember, we were sort of um, squatting. Sort of interesting, because all you could do was um, yeah, was listen and wait to see how it turned out. I always thought there was a good chance yeah. you know, that we'd we get picked up, but I worked on that assumption. So but I'm saying that's more later, because this is the first time doing a kind of underground thing, really. And I wrote a little note to Mike saying, "Yeah, so, where's Fran, and he said, gone to work, I think. And then it went through one bit, and I said, it looks like yeah, it's worked, got some phrase like that. And he said, basically, it's not over yet. Like, we didn't know what was going on. We're in a hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. And then the next bit was, um... Yeah, so I said something like it's, um, It seems it's worked or something like that. Which is a bit over optimistic for me. And, um... He said, well, yeah, it's not, not over yet. Not those words, but a phrase like that. We just wrote these notes.
1: There's this funny story where, um the SSC president uh, was walking with them and they thought that there was some authority or he was on our side. But he saw them go to a door that was locked and he didn't have keys for those doors. And they were backing away on it and suddenly there was banging from the other side the door collapsed and there were two lots of police just facing
4: each other. So I um, was sitting with Jenny um, singing and I think we sat there until about 11 o'clock in the morning. It was just an incredibly long time. And, of course, um, I knew that the draft resistors were in the building, so it was also very nerve-wracking because I didn't know at what point uh, somebody would say, you know, they found them, they found them, or whatever. Um, But I had to maintain calmness and... um, the uh, appearance that they weren't there and there was nothing to worry about. But, of course, I knew differently inside.
7: And um, and then there was, you know, significant debriefing uh, the next day and uh, the usual, you know, meetings on the university, condemning the police action, etc, etc.
3: We were still in the building when that was taking place. The police oh, wow. had smashed their way through everything, but we were still there. Two of us... Um, were hustled out to colleges nearby. Mm-hmm. And two of us, Mike Madison and myself, were in this alcove. We could hear some of the, the, the public meeting, which is on the far side of the Student Union building, on the east side of the Student Union building. So
0: the police had left.
3: Yeah. You were still had, in the alcove. Yeah, we were still. And yeah. the student
0: meeting was held. Yeah. When did you leave the alcove?
3: Uh, sometime in that afternoon, yes. I. I
0: so several hear. hours after the police had yes, already left. Yes, yes. Why yes. was that?
3: Well, we had to be sure the police had left, obviously.
0: Gotcha.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we got down, we could
5: hardly stand. Um, and soaked in sweat and stuff. So, um, but you recovered pretty quickly. We sort of stumbled a bit. Um, people were a bit worried. They thought, yeah, we looked really... We didn't feel it, but they thought we looked really knocked and exhausted. And that. We thought we were okay. We just couldn't stand.
4: I think Jenny and I had lunch and... <laughs> Probably I went back to work or something.
1: At that point, the radio was, was safe. We switched that off. So otherwise, I would have been able to trace where it was coming from, probably. That was well hidden. The draft resistors were well hidden. And everybody basically went home. And most of us felt pretty good about it, actually, at the time. I mean, there was a lot of adrenaline going on. But it was good to see them go with their tail between their legs merely a scanner that wasn't working uh, as their prize.
4: I remember that um, is, it's like an aftermath. Mm-hmm. So I told you that my memory is this slow-motion image of the phalanx of um, police sort of moving through the um, through the fog. So that, that tells you just what... um a deeply emotional event this was, and to accent that years later, years later, like when my daughters were at Melbourne Uni, for some reason I went to meet one of them in the student union, so I walked into the union, I hadn't been there since the siege, and There was the flight of stairs going up to the first floor exactly as it had been in 1971 and I thought I was going to faint. I was so physically overwhelmed and transported back to that event. So these were deeply, deeply affecting times. Well,
1: it was definitely broadcast. It was on the news uh, all day and a few days later as well from going on. For a couple of days, because then, of course, the politician got in saying how absolutely bad it was, and the university got into it saying you owe us money because you have to have, you yeah, know, campus. So even the administration of the university was was quite angry about the way it was done.
0: 3DR had achieved its goal beyond the wildest expectations of the protesters. Publicity was certainly achieved, but more than that, it was good publicity. Commonwealth police were roundly criticized. The Commonwealth police failed to capture the resistors. The radio was not captured, although the aerial was thrown over the roof. The other equipment they managed to destroy included the amateur radio club room, the record playing equipment in the Roden White Library, and the broken scanner from the SDS office. Damage was estimated from $5,000 to $10,000, which would be up to $100,000 in today's money. Deputy Commissioner Davies spoke to press following the siege and accused the protesters of violence. He is reported to have been, quote, shocked by the methods used by students to think our more educated people, those who will one day be our leaders, could have been so violent is shattering. And he's reported to have said that the students reacted with, quote, horrible violence. Two problems with this speech. One, there were no reports of violence, except for one incident which was reported in the Tribune, where a reporter alleged to have seen a single individual throwing a chair and that person was immediately restrained. Two, this speech was printed and read out immediately after the siege. As a number of reporters pointed out at the time, if it was printed, Davies must have somehow known that the students would react violently. That is, he potentially planned to trash the building, then blame the students for it. Perhaps he did expect some violence, which he intended to exaggerate at the press conference. Mr. G. L. Clarke, the president of the Liberal Club at the University of Melbourne at the time, is reported to have said, quote, It is amazing that a group of students sitting cross-legged on the floor singing is, by the standards of the Commonwealth Police, violent resistance. He said the students did not throw chairs. The incident was featured in federal parliament over the next 10 days with a grand total of 29 questions or mentions relating to the siege or the radio. The siege, in short, was a massive failure on the part of the Commonwealth police and a great triumph for the draft resistance movement. So, it makes sense that they wanted to keep it going. The 3DR transmitter was shown to the press a few days later to prove that it was not captured. After that, it was taken on a joyride for another broadcast.
1: So yeah, what we did is the next day we put our radio back on so that people could see that we had it. We put it on the back of a motorbike, raced it out to a place you know, some park somewhere, I can't remember where now, on the arrow I think it was, and threw an antenna over the branch of a tree. And um, that, you know, a few, you know, a number of people could hear it, any, any journal who wanted to hear it could listen in on it, um, on the frequency we had. So um, that were just to prove that they didn't get it. And after that, you know, a number of the people involved, uh, like Chris in particular, um, immediately decided to work to keep this going, you know, in a sense. There was this real feeling that there, there's, there's some real value in having um, community media, if you like. Wasn't called that then, but...
0: Chris Holliday, the primary tech on the radio, describes his journey to Sydney in late 1971.
8: It wasn't used in Melbourne again. The transmitter ended up going to Sydney later in 71, early 72, and we used it in Sydney uh, over a couple of weeks. I think we did call it to 2DR. Um, we transmitted in the inner suburbs of Sydney. We had helium balloons, which a friend of ours in the Bureau of Meteorology in Melbourne had, Obtained for us, they were weather balloons, and so uh, all we had to do was fill them with helium or hydrogen, and they were a very effective antenna, quite quite high. And then at the at the end of each transmission, which was at night, we just cut the wires, and they'd float off over uh, the Pacific. Uh, <laughs> we were in backyards in central Sydney, so we certainly got all around the harbour suburbs here. Yeah. The big difference was that the PMG didn't jam us, so we could be heard quite clearly. And so the signal over Sydney was actually much better than we did, than I could achieve from Melbourne Uni. The, the transmitter was always frequency agile, so we just chose a, a clear frequency and, and, and stayed on that each night. I do recall we had people like Jack Mundy, I recall very clearly, Meredith Bergman, and I do remember that there were questions asked in State Parliament, the New South Wales State Parliament, about how come... Um, the radio was to where, and how come Jack Mundy was on air on a pilot radio service? It was part of a deliberate campaign where a couple of draft sisters from from Melbourne and Sydney gave themselves up in Sydney.
0: After that, the original operators and the radio station seemed to have parted ways. It seemed that the radio took on a life of its own. There are suggestions that 3DR, referred to as resistance radio in the promotions, would return for the December 3rd moratorium and what was dubbed the Summer Offensive, which was to be a series of stunts to oppose the war in the summer of 1971-1972. There was also mention of a political festival in May 1972 that they hoped radio resistance would be a part of. Information on these incidents is still hazy, and I am working on it. So if you have any information, please let me know. The pirate radio was present in July 1972 when both Monash University and the University of Sydney mounted draft sanctuaries like the Melbourne University one at the same time. At this point the names 3DR and 3PR become entangled. 3PR, the People's Radio, was alleged to be a different entity, an entirely separate pirate radio station run at Monash University, which had more communist inclinations, and 3DR draft resistance radio, which was supposed to have only run at Melbourne University and be more inclined to the new left ideology that favoured non-violent resistance. Not only is history confused, but 3DR's contemporaries are also confused. Much of the reporting identifies what one would think as 3PR as 3DR, or 3DR as 3PR, or even identifying them both in the same room. Dale Butler, may he rest in peace, is not with us anymore to answer those questions. You heard Dale speak earlier um, as the person who uh, mounted the defence, as he said, at the University of Melbourne Draft Sanctuary. Dale was the leader of 3PR, The People's Radio, Thanks to Juliet Fox and 3CR, we have a short description of one of the more infamous stunts of 3PR, the People's Radio. Probably the only surviving audio that describes the station.
13: We would built the pirate radio station out at Monash with the Monash students. It was called uh, 3PR, People's Radio. And actually, the transmitter from that is going to be sent to given to the museum, Melbourne Museum, shortly. I built that to fit in the back seat of a. Vanguard car, which parked in a car park near the Vice Chancellor's house, and then we dug an underground trench out to his power box, stole some of his power, and also two of his and one of his telephone lines, so we could communicate. In fact, I finished up with two telephone lines because we had some insiders in the then Telecom PNG people who assisted us with the um, appropriation of the telephone lines. So programs for that radio was sent down over the telephone and some on tape, I believe. So after that finally got brought to an end by jamming and then shortly after that, the 3CR people approached me to build a transmitter for them.
0: I think some people listening may be radio obsessives like myself, and they may be interested to know what happened, even if I'm not 100% sure. As I've spent two years researching this, I am going to now leave The firm foundation of fact and give you my best guess pending further information we know that dale was a part of the siege in 1971. the only physical documentations from the monash archives that refer to a pirate radio station occur in 1972 and none of this documentation suggests that the radio was running for a period as long as a year thus suggesting it was not operational at all in 1971. thanks to juliet's interview We know that Dale discussed both the event that hosted 3DR and his involvement in 3PR in the same episode, and I would be strongly inclined to believe that if 3PR and 3DR ran at the same time, then that would have been mentioned. And remembering that Dale Butler was not involved in the technical side of Draft Resistance Radio at Melbourne. Therefore... I would suggest that as a consequence of the Melbourne University siege, Dale got the idea to build a pirate radio with his proficient technical skills and introduce it to Monash as well. This would explain the presence of the radio at the Monash University Resistance Commune, as it was called, although that certainly could have been some other person with a similar interest. Like 2DR, Draft Resistance Radio, in the Sydney University Commune, as far as I can tell, the PMG and the police had learned their lesson from Melbourne University and did not attempt to stop the pirate radio at Monash with any physical force, nor did they intervene at the Monash Drive Sanctuary at all. Probably for the best. It's possible that by merely ignoring them, the pirates went on to do something else, or also possible that jamming aided their transmissions and they did not persist. That's it. <laughs> so there you have it. That is my opinion. If you disagree with me, you're welcome to come down to the studio and fight me. Um, If you do have any other information that might suggest I'm wrong, I would love to hear it. Uh, Like I said, this is my best guess. Um, There is very little documentation from this time. This was obviously an illegal radio station. This is 45 years, 50 years later. 3DR still lives on after all of this. In September 1972, Liberation Radio was announced as the child of 3DR, or more specifically, 3DR renamed. In November 1972, Peter Galvin, a draft resistor, says, Radio 2DR now underway, and included a relay from Radio Hanoi, apparently, the pirate radio in Vietnam. The slogan was, 2DR, the station that is on the move. Finally, in December 1972, 2DR resistance radio in Sydney said that it intended to broadcast regularly. And that is the final mention of it anywhere. So more than likely, 3DR, 2DR and 3PR were all over by the end of 1972. Pirate radio was no more in Australia. Michael Hamel Green guesses why.
3: Once you had the end of conscription, the end of the anti-Vietnam War movement, you didn't have the kind of protected environments where you could operate a, a pirate radio station.
0: Michael also conned on to what my next topic of discussion is.
3: It's interesting, that range of topics, because then 3CR, which Chris Holliday went on to be a part of, covers the same gamut of topics.
0: There is a clear gap of at least one year, and more than likely two years, between 3DR and the very early beginnings of 3CR in 1974. To be clear... 3DR certainly did not become, quote-unquote, 3CR. The two stations were distinct and separate entities. But what is absolutely clear is that there is a strong connection between them. First, and most clearly, the people.
1: Yes, yeah, well, I think it was the, the, the people who worked on 3DR accepted the vision that others had as well in discussions after we closed it down and, you know, things had settled. And that vision was that community radio was a plus, and it was a way of, of getting alternative views across the electronic media, which previously we found very difficult to do, the radio stations were all monopolised, primarily into music and advertising, and the news was really the some News, you know, spoken out, so there's a real frustration with the way you know, the media operated, and our role in it was very small, and the, the idea of having a community radio station to combat that a bit and to be organized, you know, people can organize around it and so on. Uh, that was just, you know, a very popular view within the anti-war movement and conscription and, and other people in the arts and so on. So, yeah, and then, so then when the people who had built the uh, thing, uh, they were able to join with others who had similar skills uh, and... From there, it. The 3CR started. And Bevan Ramsden was mine, who will feature quite a bit in 3CR's history, although eventually he fell out with them, I think. But anyway, yeah, Bevan was one who was involved with us as well for the draft resistance and more of the Vietnam him, And um, he then went over to 3CR. We actually lost some very good people at the 3CR. <laughs> <laughs> But no, they, they, didn't. they just had a different way of doing the same things that they've been doing with us.
0: In addition, it's clear the same topics, interest, politics and attitudes were in 3DR and 3CR. Harry Van Morst, a significant figure in the radical movement at the time, explains what he believes the connection is.
1: But the fact that we could get it going was enough to make people say, look, we've got to keep it going. And that's where a number of people came out. And you now, after 3, 3DR even though we closed it, there were people talking about it within the movement, that we needed to set something up. So it very quickly morphed into community radio is important. And that was happening in other places too. It wasn't just, again, was, you know, it was sort of a possibility as time had come. And I think that uh, 3DR helped to accelerate that process. It would have happened anyway, but um, there was an acceleration, I think, of a process that, um yeah, was needed. 3CR. it was an inevitable outcome of that and very successful
0: consider this description of the return of 3DR published in October November 1971 quote programs will be flexible radio resistance has decided however to lay down these programming guidelines one music the music which is not given commercial airtime because it is unprofitable or a quote unquote offensive two advertising Counter-advertising. The facts about the advertisers. Who owns who and what. Free publicity for movement doings. Some publicity for worthwhile causes, such as the Anti-Cancer Council, anarchists, RAM, WSA, SYA and others will provide their own particular view on issues. Three, media. Regular spots on why 3DR, how an alternative media would work the monopoly situation, commercially controlled versus free communication, objectivity and news values, how the media distorts. Four, current affairs. Radio resistance will try to give the news and views that the mass media omits or distorts. The news from a radical perspective. News within a context which makes it meaningful and relevant. News about draft resistors, the anti-draft movement, women's liberation, war profiteers, pollution and the ecosystem. Alternative news, turning the established media news upside down and inside out. Five, special projects. Theme programs about subjects such as Aborigines, Ireland, Sweden, prisons, imperialism and education. Historical nostalgia programs, for example, the Depression, the Wobblies, the Spanish Civil War. Six, arts, poetry, singing, short story reading and play reading notes and news about the arts, photography, painting, etc. The current staff at 3CR may find their ears ringing, as this 1972 description of a pirate radio station chimes perfectly with their current and historic programming purview. That is, this may as well be a description of 3CR itself. I will also add that another one of Australia's oldest community radio stations, 4ZZZ in Brisbane, also refers to 3DR as one of its early influences. This is a quote from Jim Beetson in the 4 Z History Book, which reflects on the early beginnings of the station in response to the Springbok protests in 1971. Quote, The union was on strike for about 10 days. There were fires in the Great Court, tents everywhere, bands playing, and long, earnest meetings in the J.D. Storey building. At one of those meetings, because there was a draft resistors radio in Melbourne, a little pirate radio station that would broadcast occasionally, someone would often say, why don't we set up a pirate radio station? 4ZZZ went on to be licensed legally, and in my opinion is one of the best radio stations in Australia. Please stay tuned for an upcoming episode on 4ZZZ and its interesting political history. This series is about the radio, but in this episode, you can't talk about radio without talking about the politics around it. The reason this student pirate radio station existed was because of the passionate beliefs of the students involved. And I admire their courage, commitment, and above all, their creativity and dexterity in responding to the injustices they observed. I have been going to as many climate change protests as I can lately and often find myself defending the actions of Extinction Rebellion protesters to more conservatively inclined people. For example, a good friend at work who is a liberal voter and a very nice person said that she believed climate change was happening, but that the protesters were going about it the wrong way by stopping traffic and annoying people. On the contrary, I said to her, the protesters are achieving exactly what they wanted to achieve. By us talking about it right now, the protesters have got their wish. You know about climate change. You might still love coal or be against serious climate action, but you cannot pretend not to know about it. You cannot choose to live in ignorance. We've forced this issue onto the agenda and you can't avoid it. And I would say that most people are basically good. And if they were genuinely equipped with accurate information, they would want serious climate action. Only a handful of people, the ultra rich, are benefiting from climate change. Nobody else will benefit. No one else would seriously want what's coming to this earth. It's hardly fair to blame somebody for not acting on something when they don't know about it. News Corp owns 80% of the media in Australia. The front page of the newspapers after the bushfires was not, oh my God, climate change, it just burned down a quarter of the country, when obviously it should have been. By inconveniencing people or mounting creative protests, we can force the issue and make it something people know about, something people discuss.
5: So basically every day that week, people reading the mirror on their way home read something about draft resistance. It was substantial. But the idea, from my point of view, was that um, it becomes something you know about. You may not agree, but you now know about it. So if the issue comes up, or people talk about it say, like, oh, yeah, I saw something on like that. It's symbolic and disruptive.
6: Yeah, someone had the idea, a bloody good idea, and Chris Holday built the thing and got it operational and creative protest. I mean, that's really what it was. It was a matter of. Uh, new ideas that uh, uh, challenge people. And that's that's what we did. And we did it as much as we possibly could. The same way people protest today. I mean, I was just listening to someone on radio the other day recounting how she'd been involved in a Greenpeace exercise in putting solar panels on Currabilli House in Sydney when John Howard was the Prime Minister. This was in the same tradition the other language that we had uh, as a part of the whole of the movement both in terms of the anti-conscription stuff and in terms of marching down the street and sitting down in you know the moratorium uh, demonstrations yeah you know, the term we used was civil disobedience and so the radio was a part of that sort of civil disobedience that these issues were so important we're prepared to break the law. I
1: mean we realized that to... yeah we had to stir the pot if you're going to get anything to change it's not going to happen by just asking them or signing petitions and that sort of thing because they just wouldn't listen they didn't have any reason to listen
7: it's always a challenge isn't it to be creative in protest to get publicity without pissing a lot of people off and sometimes you just have to piss people off that's a
0: yeah yeah
7: so where um
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's so uh, it's going to be called 3d outdraft resistance radio sometimes you have to just piss people off <laughs>
7: because uh you know um yes it is irri- it is very irritating for people i understand that you know if they're trying to get home they've had a long day at work etc but uh the problem that the protesters face is how else how are they going to get publicity, you know, a protest that doesn't piss anyone
0: off isn't going to get on the news. In my notes, I write that the following piece of audio is spooky. (laughs) This is Helen Voisey, an activist and high school student giving a speech at the Vietnam Moratorium in 1970 that may as well have been given at the bushfire rally in December last year. The audio is courtesy of the National Sound and Film Archives and was brought to my attention by Chris Long.
13: It gives me great pleasure
6: to introduce Ms. Helen Boisley from Castle Hill High School. Yeah,
12: yeah. The high school administration didn't like it when we took the moratorium into the schools. It bugs them to see the kids that they are training for their society turn around and question the values of that society. Not only did they not like it, they tried to suppress it. They tried their hardest to stop us bringing just basic democratic rights like discussion, like wearing a moratorium badge into the school. As we're here in numbers, we want to stop this rotten war in Vietnam and we are doing our best within our schools to talk about this, to show other kids what we think is the truth about Vietnam. Support us. We need your support in fighting against the administration that is trying to keep discussion and debate out of the school. Thank you.
0: Despite our passion, Vera Boston points out that the moratorium protests in 1970 brought out a million people onto the streets of Melbourne alone. Comparatively, the massive protests in December against the government's inaction on climate change after the bushfires had 10,000 people in Melbourne and 30,000 people in Sydney.
7: I'm always I'm always a little bit disappointed by the turnout, even though some turnouts have been quite big. But it just seems to me it's such an important issue that it's uh, disappointing that they're not bigger, that they're not like the moratorium protest, for example. You know, you... I would expect, you know, to be able to mobilise 200,000 people. It's such a a huge issue, and it's not a new issue, you know. You know, I I go to... They're the two things that I would still attend regularly, like refugee protests and climate protests, and I'm always disappointed by the turnouts
0: remembering that while these movements are almost always led by the passion and creativity of the youth they always necessitate the support of other generations
6: we got a lot of support from I guess now people who are my age now the age I am now um, uh, people who've been involved in previous struggles we lived live with them and but a lot of it was a lot of it was uh, older very respectable people you know people in business people who are yeah, you know, senior academics, um, you know, people in, the, in senior public service positions and so on, who were equally opposed to what was, to, to conscription, the National Service Act and the Vietnam War and so on. And in a sense, put their hands up to support a group of young men, like me at the time, who were going through this sort of process
0: this is the end of episode one. Stay tuned for future episodes about the students that began 3 R at RMIT, the punk rockers at 4 Z in Brisbane, the conservatives who began double X in Canberra, the indigenous student broadcasters in the Northern Territory, and all God's rich tapestry of student youth who changed Australian media history. This is the first time student radio history is being put down in any recognisable way, and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to be the one to bring it to you. Thank you for listening to the Student Radio History Podcast. I was your host, Rafael Alumeri, Stay radical, Australia.